Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, this week we begin a new Christmas series entitled Christmas, Hype or Hope? So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. We've all heard of glass half full people versus glass half empty people. You know, optimists versus pessimists or hopeful people versus hopeless people, hope versus despair. And frankly, even though it's popular to poo-poo the hopeless, despairing people of the world, or at least feel pity for them, let me suggest to you a good case can be made for both hope and for despair. So consider hope. The technology of the current era really is breathtaking. The ability to both collaborate with people worldwide as we use the technological tools that we have for the good of humanity and for human betterment, well, it's as never has been before. And furthermore, the average person who lives in the middle class now lives with greater comforts and greater safety and greater access to health care than any of the richest and most powerful kings of a bygone era. How in the face of all the advancements that the human race has achieved, could we not feel hopeful? Of course, there are great challenges before the human race, and some of those challenges are overwhelming in scope, and still so much progress has been made that we need to take it and think of what's possible. Yeah, there are setbacks, but the overwhelming trajectory of the human race is good. So say the hopeful optimists. Ah, but there is an equal and powerful reason for despair. Even as technology has advanced at a breathtaking pace, it's not true that the human heart, prone to sin and hate and war and devastation, has changed and even worse. Sometimes the rise in technology has masked the human impulse towards sin. And yes, solutions to human problems have been very hopeful, but it must also be admitted that with each advancement has come a new level of evil. Just consider the examples. We all know that rising technology has also led to rising technology in our ability to kill masses of people in very short order. And that includes more than simply nuclear weapons. It includes laser-guided weapons. It includes biological weapons. And it includes the ability to spy on every single human being on Earth with invasive technology that none of our forebearers could have imagined. You know, we don't know how to stop this. And furthermore, technology has allowed us to collaborate better, but it also allows for the dissemination of everything from pornography to hate to lies, which destabilize all of existence. And as some have said, as technology expands exponentially, so also do the real unintended threats also grow exponentially. And it can only be a matter of time until one of those threats utterly overwhelms us all. Well, I'm introducing a Christmas series, which I've entitled Christmas Hope or Hype. On the hype side of things, I might speak, you know, about all the silly Christmas music this time of the year, everything from snowmen to jingling bells on reindeers. And as an aside, you know, on the latter, you know, I have to confess that I've never actually seen reindeers pulling a sled. I live in Canada, so I assure you that part of the Christmas story really is hype. You know, Christmas is about lights on rooftops and trees and houses and endless shopping and concerts and parties and gifts and family gatherings. At least that's what it is for our culture. And as we are constantly being told, the merchants depend on Christmas in order to ensure their businesses will survive the year. 
That's a lot of hype. And all that hype has nothing to do with the real message of Christmas. I would say that the hype is the secular answer to Christmas. You don't have to celebrate the incarnation or the birth of the Savior in order to have a wonderful and merry Christmas, at least not the secular version of it. It's all hype. It offers no hope whatever. Now, even though that has become the predominant theme in secular cultures, that's not what this series is dedicated to. This series is about the claim of hope that is made in the real Christmas story. See, the real Christmas story is that the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of the world, was born. God became a man and dwelt among us. He healed the sick, he raised the dead, he gave sight to the blind, and he cast out demons, and he announced that the kingdom of God had broken into this dark and lost world. And because of the true light of God that has begun to shine, there is genuine hope. Evil will not survive. God's eternal kingdom has already broken into this present realm, and therefore... It's only a matter of time until the kingdom of evil utterly collapses and the kingdom of light reigns forever and ever. See, that's the message I want to examine. And honestly and unflinchingly, I want to ask, is this hype or is this hope? You know, for those who claim it's hype, I'm going to try to restate the doubts that you have. And if you're among those that think this is hope, as I clearly do, I'm going to try to restate that as clearly as I can as well. The hope of which we speak and the contrast or the opposing force of despair and hopelessness goes back to the foundation of the human race. Adam and Eve, the first human pair, have been placed into the garden. And furthermore, they are given a command that as image bearers of God, they are to have dominion over the earth. They, on behalf of God, are to rule the earth in righteousness. This was the destiny of the human race. But that destiny was about to be smashed by rebellion. Adam and Eve followed the wisdom of the serpent and decided, rather than live under God's rule, that they would become gods unto themselves. And with that comes the announcement that they will die. Death enters the human race. And among all the creatures, the man and the woman go from living forever to now being subject to death, despair, gloom, darkness, disease, misery. And furthermore, Adam and Eve discover they're naked and vulnerable and subject to all manner of forces beyond their control. Eve discovers that the joy of giving birth to more image bearers of God, image bearers that will fill the earth and rule it, that joy is now mitigated by the pain that will attend childbearing. She is overwhelmed, and Adam discovers that the joy of work, the joy of ruling the creation, will now be met by a creation that bears thorns and thistles. Yeah, he's going to make progress, but all that progress might be very quickly lost. But in the midst of what would be unmitigated darkness, leading ultimately to death, comes this glorious ray of hope. Genesis 3.15 tells us that God makes a promise. In the future, he will send one who will bruise the head of the serpent and thus bring the end of the age of evil. When the promised deliverer comes, evil will end. That's what makes Genesis 4.1 so startling. The passage at first seems hopeful. The first human birth, and Eve, although pain would have attended this birth, and yet the birth did not result in her death. Unlike so many of her daughters after her, having lost their lives in childbearing, she lives, and so does her son. Genesis 4 verse 1 says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. You know, to the English reader, this sounds like an unremarkable statement. God has overseen this birth, and now a baby boy has been born. But Hebrew scholars tell us this statement bears a note of great optimism, of great hope. But there's even more hope. 
The phrase I have gotten is only one word in the Hebrew language. When this verb is used in relation to God, it speaks of God's redeeming work. Redemption means deliverance from slavery. I've experienced redemption, she says, in this son. And I mention this because it seems quite likely that given the promise of a great deliverer who will free the human race from the curse, that Eve most likely believed that this boy was more than life in a world of darkness. She believed he was the deliverer, the Messiah, the great king who would bruise the serpent's head and so end the invasion of sin and rebellion. The darkness, which was then so profound, would be rolled back by the birth of this boy whom she named Cain. Cain, the name, represents hope. How cruelly, then, her hopes were dashed. This child was not the expected redeemer, but this child was to become the first murderer in human history. Hope had been savagely crushed by cruel reality. And in a way, for those of us who are more prone to see the glass half empty, this is what hope feels like. It seems so hopeful, so sweet, so filled with promise, so infused with insurance that good and light and righteousness is going to win out. And surely the end of misery is before us. But are we to think this way? As Cain looks with envy upon his brother, he does that which no one had taught him to do. He devises a way to kill. Indeed, before the actual act of murder occurs, God himself encounters Cain. He's warned sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. You know, in the ancient world, demons often were thought of in that fashion. They would crouch behind a bush or even at the shadows of a doorway, waiting to pounce. A great and monstrous evil crouches, and it's inspired by the serpent himself, the very one who deceived your parents. It seeks to own you. And with those words ringing in his ears, Cain speaks to his brother. Come join me in a field. I need your company. I don't wish to be alone. Then as they walk together, he kills him. The Bible doesn't tell us how, but there must have been considerable blood. God will tell Cain that the blood of his brother is crying out from the ground. Cain may have taken a rock and crushed his brother's skull, but it was now done. Murder had invaded the human race. So where now is the hope? Where now is the longing for a day when sin and death ends, when rebellion against the Creator is now in the rearview mirror, and when the serpent lies crushed on the road? No, it's not the serpent who's crushed. It's Cain's brother Abel. He's been crushed. And with his death, so also dies the idea that hope is at hand. There's no denying that these past few years have been full of hardships on a global scale. Can you imagine facing these troubles daily without the knowledge of a sovereign God? I can't. The reality is that there are millions of people around the world living every day without that assurance and searching for it in places that only return empty. That's why the mission of Back to the Bible Canada is so critical. This ministry exists to resource people with the only source of eternal hope and truth as revealed in God's Word, both faithful and uncompromised. As we close out our calendar year, the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada have a goal to raise $517,000 by December 31st. Please join us as lives are changed through the consistent, faithful teaching and engagement of the Bible. Consider a gift today by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I sometimes wonder how one can be hopeful at all. Sometimes if I let the despair grow in me, 
I think the world has no hope at all. Yeah, I know medical advances and human collaboration, the ability to travel, and the experience of joy does seem to grow as we have become a better world than the one that existed, for instance, in the Middle Ages or even before that. You know, the ancient Romans delighted the crowds with blood sports, man murdering man in an arena to the cries of delight from a crowd. In our world today, the United Nations has put together a universal bill of human rights. And I know the bill is not recognized in a great many places on earth, but nonetheless, it exists, and it's a template for what could exist if the forces of good grow. Isn't the world better when we watch a football game as opposed to gladiators in an arena? Isn't there reason for hope? But even while that's true, we also know that our weapons of mass destruction are of a kind that no past generation could have imagined, and the hatred in the human heart hasn't gone away. And furthermore, as much as we argue that we would not murder as did the previous generations, we look mildly away as millions of inconvenient unborn children are taken from the womb every year and killed before they can enjoy this world. And on the technology front, there are nations today that use this amazing technology to monitor over a billion human beings, tracing all of their movements and enforcing compliance on them from the few in power who have found a way to dominate the masses. And on the terrorist front, how about anti-Semitism? Like the story of Cain, wherever we find hope, we also find darkness to be suffocating. You know, it's this, the interplay of hope with its opposite, despair, that makes its way through the entire book of Genesis. And it's not just that human beings have a capacity for wickedness. It is that God sees wickedness and he won't let it stand. At first, after the murder of Abel, hope regains a footing. Genesis 5.3 tells us that when Adam was 130 years old, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. That in Genesis 5 is the formal announcement. Seth by then had already been born. Indeed, in Genesis 4, we're told that God appointed Seth to stand in the place of his murdered brother. And furthermore, in those days, that is, in the days of Seth, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And so it's not out of the realm of possibility that the one to bruise the serpent's head would not be Cain, but would be Seth. Perhaps the hope arrived a little later than we had imagined, but it was now clearly here. Evil will end. But we would be too quick to think this would be the case. Indeed, by the time Seth began to influence people, the reign of evil had become deeply embedded in the human race. Cain had born a son and named him Enoch, and gradually a civilization would be formed based on Cain's mentality that power over others to the point of murder would win the day. Eventually, a man named Lamech would be born. And he would say, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, I'm avenged seventy-sevenfold. Lamech himself was a murderer, and from his tribe of humanity, the cruel power mongers, civilization would advance. Music was born in that context. Advancements in the use of metal for tools would be born in that context. This was not only an evil civilization, it was also a great civilization capable of moving the human race forward. I mean, what a thought! As Genesis continues to tell the story of the progress of the human race, we see two different groups of people. On the one hand, we see the descendants of Cain and Lamech growing and becoming powerful. Eventually, the earth would be filled with powerful warlords, all vying with each other for power, for mastery over the future. Among these people, reconciliation with God was hardly even on their radar. Rather, they were a people who would be lords of the earth, subjecting all under their feet. 
The human race started with this kind of a story very early on, and it's perfected it in our day. But Genesis does tell another story. Cain has descendants, but so does Seth. And with that comes Genesis chapter 6. And it begins in this way. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, I'm aware that this passage has been the subject of considerable debate. There are those who argue that there was a time in history when the demons had relations with women, creating a race of superhuman beings, beings like the Nephilim who simply overpowered all opposition. You know, I, for my part, have never found that idea very convincing. I mean, for one, there's nothing in the Bible that even hints at that. And furthermore, Jesus, in his teaching, said that the angels, that they are spirits and they don't marry, nor are they given in marriage. They don't have sexual relations. And the demons, I mean, they're simply fallen angels. And so I see no reason to believe that demons can make babies with women. And of course, it were actually true that they could. What would stop them from doing that today? No, no. This idea of half human, half demon, these beings, that sounds more like science fiction than the biblical text. So what's going on in Genesis 6? Well, the sons of God, if we simply follow the drama of Genesis, those are the sons of Seth, the descendants of the man who taught people to call on the Lord. But because of the wickedness on the earth, the sons of Seth were in danger of being wiped out. And so in order to survive, the sons of God married the daughters of men, that is, the leaders of their community, intermarried with the leaders of the powerful warlords in order to form political alliances so that they might survive. And in consequence, just like what would happen so many years later when King Solomon would marry women from neighboring kings around him in order to form alliances and to secure his nation, so back in Genesis 6, the sons of God were being defeated by powerful warlords. So they form political alliances through marriage, marrying the daughters of men. The result was that the godly line of Seth, or shall we say, the godly line of the people who remembered the one true God, were being reduced in size until finally they're down to one man and his family, a man named Noah. The light of the world, the hope of the earth, was now flickering like a candle in a wind. Who has hope in times like this? Who could dream of the one who would bruise the head of the serpent and bring in the renewal of the dream of men and women submitted to God's righteousness, ruling over the works of his hands as obedient servants of the Lord? I mean, that dream, at least as we find it in Genesis 6, seems like a very cruel hoax, all hype. Would it not have been better not hope at all? You know, for the hope seems like a fairy tale, and the story on the ground, warlords, increasing wickedness, crimes against man and against God, those were rampant. To those who reject hope, Genesis 6 is the chapter. It's just a chapter for you. But the rest of the book of Genesis from chapter 6 all the way through to the end of chapter 50 shows us that there is reason to continue to hope that the promised one will bruise the head of the serpent and that the kingdom of heaven, that hope, will not die. And it's for one reason alone. That hope was brought to the human race by God himself. He it is that is responsible for giving us such an audacious hope. God brings a flood and destroys all life on earth and Noah and his family and the animals on the ark, all of them will start again. But this time, God makes another promise. He will so change the situation of the cultures of the earth so that the situation of wickedness that led to the flood would never happen again. God will so divide the earth, making it impossible for one super society from ever developing. And so the Tower of Babel debacle 
marks the end of the dream of one super society controlling the earth. Ultimate evil will constantly be held in check. You know, in time, God would raise up a man greater than Seth. His name would be Abraham, and eventually, people would again begin to call on the name of the Lord. Indeed, Abraham was given a promise, one that Seth never heard. God would tell Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. I mean, we might stop here, for if we'd never heard that story before, we might wonder if this man Abraham really was the promised Messiah. I mean, could this man really crush the head of the serpent and usher in the kingdom of God? But as time goes by, we find out he's not the one. For one, Abraham, in spite of his faith, does sin. And on one occasion, he even sells his wife into a harem. And he does really repeat the sins of the sons of God who married the daughters of men. Abraham was just afraid, just like they were in the times of Seth. And he would make compromises. And furthermore, Abraham's descendants are hardly the exemplary sons of God that we would have thought. Abraham gives birth to Isaac. Isaac gives birth to Jacob. And Jacob gives birth to 12 sons from whom come the 12 tribes of Israel. But as Genesis ends, the 12 sons are filled with their own sins. And they've moved to Egypt because of a great famine. And eventually they're going to be enslaved. Hope gives way to despair one more time. So Christmas is the story of why hope will win, why darkness will lose. Listen this week as I try to tell the story of why Jesus' entrance into this world is the death blow against evil and the assurance that the kingdom of heaven will prevail. No, 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 no. It's not hype at all. This is Genuine Hope. Thanks so much, John, for your message. Let me ask you on behalf of the skeptic, This hope you describe just seems like fantasy. How can I believe? Well, certainly it's fantasy if the only uh, source for believing we have is that we look at the world as it presently exists and look for indications within it that things will change ultimately and bring about a reign of peace. I mean, that's, you know, clearly not here within this world. Uh, What we need to look at are the actual, uh, you know, promises that are made in Scripture, how they were fulfilled in Jesus, what Jesus actually did while he was on the earth, and that he rose from the dead and conquered death itself. And once we see that, we should be able to have reasons for hope, and our skepticism, I think, must fade away. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Christmas Hyper Hope, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada is just not a small team of people in an office, but a team of thousands across this nation who all share the common dream of seeing people confronted with the truth of the gospel. We're so blessed to be backed by faithful and generous supporters who do so much in making this ministry a reality. Sharon recently wrote in saying, we wanna be part of what God is doing through Back to the Bible Canada, not just in Canada, but overseas. That's why we support. If you believe in the mission of this ministry, please join the cause. Your gifts amplify the sharing of the good news. Consider sending a gift today to help reach our year-end goal by December 31st. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.com.
www.backtothebible.ca. And from our family at Back to the Bible Canada to yours, Merry Christmas.